Welcome to the Deep Change Podcast, where we explore the future of human potential through psychology, brain tech, and pushing the boundaries of neuroplasticity. I'm your host, James Garrett, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Daniel Chow on the show. Dr. Daniel Chow is a neuroscientist and entrepreneur who specializes in technology that improves brain performance. He's the co-founder of Halo Neuroscience, a venture-backed human performance company based in the Bay Area. The company's first product, Halo Sport, is the world's first neurostimulation system built specifically to accelerate the development of muscle memory from training. Prior to founding Halo, Dr. Chow was the head of business development at Neuropace, where he helped create the world's first closed-loop neurostimulation device for the treatment of epilepsy. He received his MD and his MS in neuroscience from Stanford University. Dr. Chow is creating technologies that are literally allowing us to tap into our deepest potential. He has a big vision for what brain stimulation can do for all of us, and he has the heart, passion, and smarts to pull it off. Dan, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, James. With that introduction, um, I, I need to buy you lunch the next time we're, we're, we're together. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad uh, this worked out. And I'm so, I'm so glad you're on the show. Um, I've been following Halo for, for a while now. And uh, I just want to get right into the main uh, kind of idea of what Halo is. You know, for most of our listeners, some of them have heard about Halo, some have not. Um, so tell us a little bit about the basics of kind of what what is Halo trying to achieve, um, and 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 you know in the next you know couple years? Yeah, so you know I guess it, let me just get down into it because I know your your audience is you know more sophisticated um, as things related to the brain are concerned. So, so you know we are you know I it, folks will report that we're a neurostimulation company or we're neuro enhancement company or something like that. But I think at the core of it, we're a neuroplasticity company. Mm. So we, we are interested in plasticity and helping people learn faster, helping people retune neural circuits to treat whatever neural disorder that they're suffering from. Like all of this, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the foundational element to, both of these things, which might sound disparate at first, is really our ability to create and destroy um, neuronal connections. Mm. Is this idea that the brain is plastic and moldable um, and shapeable uh, according to our needs? So, you know, whether it be, you know, related to our first product, which is about learning movement faster. So, you know, this is for athletes and surgeons and folks in the military, like anybody who's really practicing movement a lot and begging their brain to learn it faster. Right now we have a solution for them. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I, I really interested to, to get into it, but you know, they the future of the company really extends far beyond just movement learning. Like, you know, we're interested in neuroplasticity in general and how that can help humanity. Yeah. Um, this is partly why I've been so inspired by what you're doing is I, from the outside in, I, you know, again, brain stim gets talked about a lot, I think in part because it's so unique or kind of outside of, you know, a normal person's experience. Um, but at the heart of it, it's neuroplasticity. 
totally. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Helping that, helping neuroplasticity uh, work better or, or more efficiently or, or reducing the time it takes to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, um, yeah. Thank you for saying that, by the way, because, um, you know, if like I, for, for most people, they don't understand how important neuroplasticity is. Um, a, a lot of people say it and they don't really understand what it is, but they use it in a sentence, um, sometimes correct, sometimes not. Yeah. But, you know, for the sake of this conversation, you know, let's just think of neuroplasticity as the, you know, the, the formation and the, the destruction of, of synapses. And, you know, this is a beautiful thing that we have an organ in our body that can adapt to our needs. Things that get used a lot, things that get lots of practice, um, you know, those, those neuronal connections are hardened and built more robustly than neuronal connections that go unused. Um, neuroplasticity is age dependent, right? So when we're younger, um, our ability to create and destroy neuronal connections is much, much more robust than um, than, than someone who's older. Uh, we peak in our teens and then the decline starts, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, I, I, I should mention that it never goes to zero. doesn't matter how old you are. It never goes to zero. So, you know, we still, like, even if you're in your 70s, 80s, or 90s, have the ability to tap into um, this amazing function called neuroplasticity uh, uh, to, you know, to further ourselves neurologically. Yeah, I think that's, it's interesting. I mean, some of the most interesting research around what you're talking about, I think, is the, in neurogenesis, these, the, you know, in one of the places we know that the brain creates lots of, call them baby neurons, right, from, from stem cells, uh, is in the hippocampus and the memory centers of the brain. Uh, and, and, um, when I talk about neurogenesis, one of the most interesting studies that, that I, that I, that I uh, know of is 50, 57 to 72 year olds are generating somewhere between 500 to 1,000 new neurons every single day in their hippocampus, just their hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And so, and when I tell people that, it, it literally, for some reason, there's some, the idea of creating new neurons, like a, like a package of, um, almost like a resource, you know, it's sort of like your brain's generating these new neurons. It's kind of like, well, what are they, what's their job description going to be? Where are they going to be used or employed or where are they going to migrate to in the brain? Uh, and that totally depends on use if you're using them and how much exercise you're putting your brain through. So how, how does, how does, um, how does Halo and the technology you guys have built, and I'm actually just going to show up for those who are seeing video uh, this is what it looks like. Um, it's a, it's a, it looks like an awesome pair of headphones, you know, a pair of Beats or, or Bose headphones uh, with these kind of foam, um, you know, these little, little foam cones, basically these small little cones that, that actually touch your scalp along your head. Um, how does what you've built with Halo, uh, how does it help neuroplasticity? How does it actually accelerate mm. learning? Yeah, so uh, you're you're right in in describing Halo Sport looking like a like a regular set of headphones, but um, you're also right in pointing out the business end of the headphones. So, you know, a lot of people think, oh, those are headphones, and and so the active ingredient is the music, 
Mm. But uh, the, the sound actually has nothing to do with the technology. It's completely optional. You can listen to music or not. It's up to you. Mm. Uh, the business end uh, is on the underside of the arch. And you, you correctly pointed out that um, they, they, there are these foam nibs that come in gentle contact with your scalp. And those foam nibs are actually electrodes. Uh, what you do when the headset's turned on and paired to our app is you can control uh, this neurostimulation waveform uh, by which 20 minutes of this neurostimulation will induce a 60-minute window where you can learn faster. And because of the neuroanatomy, this part of your brain that sits like a horseshoe going from ear to ear right over the top of your head is yeah. the so-called motor cortex. So the motor cortex, going back to neuroanatomy 101, is this special part of the brain that um, is responsible for controlling movement. So the question is, uh, you know, we've got this system where we can apply an amount of electrical energy to the brain and basically kickstart its neuroplasticity functionality. So, you know, like we use this term, not just us, other folks do, called hyperplasticity. So mm -hmm. it's neuroplasticity, but just more robust. So we can induce these temporary states of hyperplasticity and in the case of Halo Sport, it'll be targeted at the motor cortex. So now, uh, like, what if we put it all together? Um, stimulate the motor cortex and then pair that with movement training. So athletic movement training, musical movement training. So not the creative side of producing movement, but the music, but the, um, the, the, the mechanical side, like playing piano or violin, you can imagine how... Um, incredibly challenging it is from a motoric standpoint mm. um, and the thankless hours of practice that you know um, skilled musicians need to put in before they're good like nobody's questioned why does it take so long same thing with an athlete or a special operator in the military or a surgeon it's just like these thankless hours of repetitive practice over and over and over again and the dedication to the craft is almost celebrated in culture but nobody's ever stopped to ask, like, why does it take so long? Is there something that we could do to actually make this go faster? Yeah, I'm actually using Halo to try to, so I've started learning guitar since March 1st. I've been practicing 20 minutes a day, and so I'm trying to use the Halo to actually accelerate my guitar nice. skills. So, so I'm, I'm thinking of it like moving from a, from a D, D, I was just doing this yesterday, actually sh shifting from like a D chord to a G chord. These are like super easy things for most guitarists who really know how to play. But for beginners, you know, like myself, uh, you know, that, that, that D chord, something about it, like my, my ring finger just feels all awkward and it's, it's, it's like a tricky position. But, I, but, but this is what you're saying is it, it, it allows that repetitive movement, switching chord shapes, to, 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 to learn that more quickly. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, we, there's this common term called muscle memory, which of course is not in your muscle. It's in your brain. brain yeah, of course. And it takes a very long time to develop muscle memory, right? Like, uh, I mean, you know what you have to do, James, to hit a D chord. You know what you have to do to hit a G chord. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't happen on its own until you put in tens of hours of work 
where then it starts to become second nature, which is, you know, where, where I draw the line where muscle memory just kind of happens, right? Where certain movement patterns are on automatic. It, you know, to me, that's muscle memory. To me, that's mastery of a certain motoric skill. And yeah, to do that, it just takes repetition upon repetition for hours and days and weeks before it actually encodes itself into muscle memory. Now, you know, what if like, yeah, you know, I think people have empirically stumbled upon ways to accelerate that process, like get a good night's sleep or, you know, do really focused, deliberate practice, not messy practice. Yeah. So these types of things can sort of hasten the process, but let's do all of those things plus use neurostimulation to really get this going. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into the science here and the data that proves this out, but you know, like the data shows that you can lift the rate of learning by about 50%. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I've told people this, right. That the, and the, the, exactly what you just said, that you can lift the, the rate of learning by 50% and people, their jaws drop. Yeah, it's, it is, um, it is the truth. Like, uh, you know, the, the data really su supports that. So, and the data being transcranial direct stimulation data. Yeah, correct. So the, the technology that we're talking about that we're just referring to the technology probably because it's a mouthful to say is called transcranial direct current stimulation or abbreviated TDCS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is a form of electrical neurostimulation. So, 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 so tell us how, and I know you guys describe it as neural priming, which is a great phrase uh, that, that doesn't sound highly technical, that sounds cool, right? From a, from a, how do you, how do you market this to someone who's not super familiar with how the brain works necessarily, right? Um, how does, so, so again, thinking about the technology. So again, for those who are seeing this on video, these, you know, you put it on your head, these, the actual foam uh, nibs, as you call them, is a great word, uh, actually touch your scalp, and then it sends an electrical current into, through the skull, am I right? Correct. Uh, so it's strong enough to go through the skull, but gentle enough to, to sort of lightly prime or sort of um, get into, say, an active state, one in which more action potentials or firings, neural firings would occur. Um, is that how you, how would you describe the actual uh, what's happening in that motor cortex when you're priming. Yeah, so it's, um, let me use this analogy, a simple analogy, and then we'll dig in and like, you know, turn it into a proper brain example. Um, you know, if you, James, saw me at the park and I was struggling to do a pull-up and, you know, you walk over, it's like, hey, there's, there's Dan. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll spot him and give him some help. Mm. And so you give me 20 pounds of assistance and now I can do a pull-up. Um, that's wonderful. Um, and, you know, after a while I get stronger and I'm able to do the pull-up on my own. So with the neurostimulation, the TDCS um, that we're providing, and it doesn't have to be our equipment, it could be anybody's equipment, laboratory systems, for example. Uh, what we're doing is we're applying an electric field that gives the neurons, the underlying neurons, uh, a little bit of a boost, similar to the boost that you gave me when I was trying to do a pull-up. Um, so, Which then makes them more likely to fire? Exactly, exactly. So 
in the case of a neuron, it's not a pull-up, it's, it's an action potential. It's firing an action potential. It's so, actually creating a certain charge in the neuron, which makes the probability of it firing more high. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we're just, we're giving, you gave me 20 pounds of assistance to do a pull-up. So what the neurostimulation is doing, TDCS, is giving a neuron 20 pounds of assistance to fire an action potential. So uh, what does that mean? Um, so that means that a population of neurons um, are all slightly more excitable, mm. right? So they can all fire action potentials just a little bit easier than they would have otherwise. And if you pair that with practice, then on a purely statistical level, the likelihood of two neurons firing in synchrony go up. Mm. Okay, so, and, you know, for those who, you know, there's this old neuroscience saying neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah, Daniel Hebb, of course. So, yeah, so the, like, neurons that fire in perfect synchrony is a really special event for neurons. Mm. You know, they say, buddy, that just happened. Yeah, and the other guy says, yes, I, I felt that too. Let's grow closer together. Let's deploy resources so that we can build synapses towards each other towards each other and for those synapses that are already there let's make them bigger and stronger right and so this is the like the fundamental underpinning for how new circuits are created in our brain and how learning and memory happens does it also because of the firing and i'm thinking i'm thinking of heavy and the sort of heavy and phrase right neurons mm -hmm. fire together wire together uh one of the other mechanisms which i have always just found wildly fascinating is of course myelin sheath which is for those who don't know this term it's insulation for the brain along the axon um, and part of it is uh, timing as you're saying right neurons firing in, 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 in synchrony um, but it, but what I find so fascinating is uh, when neurons are firing a lot there's this whole other support system of the brain the glial cells uh, in a particular type of glial cells, and this is a terribly long word, but they're called oligodendrocytes, oligos, we call them in the lab, uh, whose whole job is to wrap the myelin. They're the wrappers, they're the pavers. They're the ones who actually create um, faster, more robust, um, stronger signals along the trunk of the neuron, or the, think of neurons like trees, you know? They're wrapping the trunk of the tree. Um, and so does it also do that when, when you're, when you're creating that electrical field and you're, and you're, I, I just have to deduce this, right? That, that, that you're making those neurons fire more actively. So you're also activating that whole support system of the brain, which then are not only creating new synaptic connections or dendritic connections, but also more myelin. You're also myelinating, myelinating those paths. Uh, I would say secondarily, not okay. primarily. Yeah. So yeah, the reach of the technology is really that initial event, um, like shifting the resting membrane potential. So that's a little bit closer to the threshold potential. And this goes back to that 20 pounds of assistance, hmm. uh, making it a little bit easier for neurons to fire. So that is the primary thing that the technology does. Now, you know, wonderful things happen downstream, like neurons firing in synchrony, like that happening more often statistically. And then neurons firing in synchrony, you know, that leads to other, you know, beautiful events like increased myelination and like increased synaptogenesis and 
mm-hmm. um, those types of things. Like, and, and so like the cascade is wonderful, but I wouldn't say that the technology primarily helps those things. I think it just primarily helps with the initial event. Have, have you guys along these lines in your own kind of internal research uh, within the company, have you, have, have you, have you guys ever done small scale pre and post uh, testing? I'm thinking like, uh, I mean, I just did an, an MRI and I'm doing more functional MRI to, as part of this deep change project to watch my own changes in my own brain. Again, I'm an, I'm a sample size of one person. Um, so I'm not a scientific sample in that sense, but, but, but the question is, I, I'm, I'm curious if you were to do, uh, like, you know, they call it a volumetric analysis, uh, uh, an analysis of volume of white and gray matter, you know, along the motor cortex pre and post using halo, for example, for, you know, a, a period of time that seems meaningful. Has there been any research like that, that you guys have done internally? Um, so we haven't done that work. And the reason why is, um, not because we're not interested, but uh, you know, for us, what's more important is a functional behavioral change. Mm. Um, you know, whether we can pick that up on imaging, um, you know, that's that's interesting, but it doesn't really matter to our customers. Mm. You know, what our customers want, what we want, is for a functional change. Fast, um, faster and, times, better coordination. Correct, correct. Like all of those beautiful behavioral changes that we would want. Like, you know, for you, you know, you want to hit that D chord and the G chord. And I think at the end of the day, like the bottom line is like, that is what you want. Mm. Um, whether you could see an MRI change, like, you know, even if you didn't see an MRI change, like maybe it's still there. It's just, you know, it's the MRI's fault. It's not sensitive enough to pick it up. So, uh, so yeah, we, so we do a lot of research. We have seven neuroscientists on staff and they have a separate office so that we don't get in each other's way. And, mm. uh, you know, we do a ton of testing. I think we've enrolled over 2000 people and, you know, randomized studies. Uh, so, but, but again, like all of that is really, really like we're laser focused on behavior change, like functional change, um, and, and less so around imaging changes. Interesting. So, so I want to, along those lines, when you're talking about, so, so of course the, the big push in the early years of Halo has been marketing towards athletes and musicians. Correct. Because that's the, that's the clear target audience that benefits the most from motor, motor cortex enhancement. Um, in theory, this same type of technology could be aimed at, say, the mindfulness audience, right? People who are really interested in meditation and mindfulness. Um, is there, are there hopes to sort of use the same kind of technology on the prefrontal cortex or other areas of the brain? I know there's, there's been some research on, uh, on enhancing creativity if you stimulate um, part of the temporal lobe on the right side. Um, and, and deactivate the left temporal lobe kind of at the same time, you get like lots of idea flow, meaning you just start flowing with more ideas. You increase creativity pretty, pretty dramatically. Scott Barry Kaufman has talked about this in his book, Wired to Create. 
Um, do, are you guys interested in those other topics? I know that gets more complex because it's not as the, the, the band that sits around the kind of headphones, which is the motor cortex, anatomically makes it really easy to stimulate that part of the brain uh, and look cool, right? Which matters to most consumers. Uh, how, what, are your, what are your visions for, for other enhancements, other, other uh, skills people want to acquire? Yeah, so we're, you're right, like Halo Sport is a motor cortex. It's really designed for motor cortex, just based on the anatomy. But there's nothing that could stop us from basically taking the same technology and moving the electrode to a different part of the, to the brain. Um, and, you know, we're super interested, and I don't want to spill company secrets here, but um, let's just, let's just review the science, and maybe this will be a hint at our future. But uh, you know, there's 4,000 papers published on this topic now using mm -hmm. TDCS for you know, targeting a variety of different brain regions for a variety of different either enhancements in healthy people or uh, treating neuro or psychiatric disorders. Uh, there's a couple hot spots. So one is motor cortex, and we've talked enough about that. Um, the other is prefrontal cortex. So Prefrontal cortex is like the top part of your forehead. And that's received quite a bit of scientific attention, um, both from uh, the outside world as, and, and Halo. Like, you know, we, we, we study it quite a bit as well. And so what does a prefrontal cortex do? It is, um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a critical brain region for uh, executive function. Um, namely, uh, something that's called cognitive control. Yeah. So cognitive control is this beautiful thing that, um, you know, probably makes humans humans. Um, it, it's like animals have very little cognitive control. Cognitive control is about attention and focus and vigilance. It's about thinking about the things that you want to think about and not letting all the other competing ideas and distractions get in the way. It allows us to be productive. It allows us to remember stuff. Mm. Like remember, you, like you know, for you to remember something, you need to be focused and attentive. Um, so, uh, you know, one could argue that cognitive control is more important today than any other time in humanity. Um, and this is because of the phone that yeah. sits in our pocket and just constantly distracts us. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I think for many people, they find that um, they are less productive today because of the phone and it's constant interruptions than they have been in years previous. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do we deal with this? Um, you know, we're like, you know, our, ourself research wise and, you know, um, others in the field, many of these scientific labs are now our friends. Um, are, there, there's been some really wonderful publications using different forms of electrical neurostimulation. So we've been talking about TDCS, so transcranial direct current stimulation. But there's another flavor of electrical neurostimulation called TACS, so transcranial alternating current stimulation. Hmm. Um, and there's been some really great work on both sides. Um, 
um, yeah, I think it remains to be seen which one's better. Uh, there's been some nice proof points on both sides and they have their pluses and minuses. So, you know, time will tell like uh, which waveform is better, but uh, you know, it's uh, like who wouldn't want to be more attentive and focused. And, you know, we've been talking about like things that happen primarily and then the wonderful three things downstream of that. So those who are more attentive and focused tend to have better memory because it soaks in. Yep. Um, people who are attentive and focused um, are more productive as that that's not controversial. Yeah. People yeah. who are attentive and focused are actually more creative. Yeah. You know, some of the most creative people on earth have said, you know, creativity is not about um, like endless freedom. It's about, it's about boundaries. And, you know, you, you want to think expansively, but at some point you need to narrow the solution space and think creatively within a certain sandbox. Um, you know, that, that isn't the world that's more contained. And so that's where attention and focus come in. Um, lack of attention and focus beget uh, human disease. So if you do not have control over your attention and focus, you could focus on the negative aspects of your life to an extent um, that one could be classified as being depressed. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you That's know, all fascinating. Of us I've never thought of that uh, as, as say rumination, which is sort of the roots of depression as yes, an yes. attentional deficit or, 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 or a lack of attentional control. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it is interesting because we all have, you know, we all live life and let's face it, not all of it is positive. Yeah. And yeah. there are ways of dealing with it and moving on that are respectful to, um, you know, the things of the past, but it's also important to not let it overtake your life. And, 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 you know, for most of us, we're lucky we're able to do this and we're not depressed, but for the same person with, uh, you know, a similar level of negative things that have happened in their life, like, like, you know, there's, um, you know, there, there comes a point where you just need to focus your attention away from it. Mm. Um, and, and so there's, yeah, like there's, uh, you know, even addiction, um, addiction and obesity could be thought of as um, a, a, a disease of cognitive control, right? Like, uh, you know, for like, you know, for me, I'm, I'm normal weight for my size, uh, but I'm one of these people that I'm like constantly hungry and right after a meal, I could still eat. Yeah. But I shift my attention away from it deliberately to move on and do something else. Now, uh, you know, someone else without great attentional control um, will just let it like ruminate and you have to, it's like this, it's like this itch, you have to scratch it. And in this case, it's eating. Right. And that leads to, that leads to weight problems. Um, you know, the, the same parallel goes with, uh, you know, anything that could be addictive, like smoking cigarettes or, um, yeah, it's like this, this, uh, this, this itch that if you don't turn your attention away from it, then you, you end up having to scratch it. And if that itches the urge to drink or smoke a cigarette or eat more food, then these maladaptive behaviors end up, you know, turning into something that could be fairly serious. It's fascinating because the, the research that, that I've been reading on, um, on cravings or, or urges, you know, it, it, they're finding it takes about 15 minutes for those to, uh, 
go away, basically, right? If you can kind of surf the urge or surf the craving, just reorient or redirect that attention to something else, you'll actually, it will, it will subside within 15 minutes or so. So it makes perfect sense as a skill set and has massive implications. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, we've been talking about neurostimulation, but I really, I really think this is what mindfulness is doing. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness training yeah. is training our ability to think about the things we want to think about. It's, it's about cognitive control. It's about the prefrontal cortex. Um, so I, you know, I, I think mindfulness is wonderful. Um, you know, it, it could be practice using um, an app and these types of things, or just in everyday life, you know, just sitting in an elevator, like resist the urge mm. to grab your phone and check something. It's only a 20 second elevator ride. Yeah, right. Really? Um, yeah, that's yeah, just right. close your eyes and calm down. And... <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it, for me, it's funny because for me, exactly what you're saying, cognitive control and prefrontal cortex and, um, is, is really, really important to me. In fact, uh, I'm probably, I, I, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't even say this because I'm sure you would not recommend this, but I've even tried just placing the, the foam, you know, the, the, the halo on my forehead just to see, you know, and of course it's a very similar phenomenon, a very similar experience as it is over the motor cortex. And it's not designed that way. And it obviously doesn't fit right and whatever. Um, but, but it's, I think it's a natural extension for those brain hackers and neuro hackers out there and consciousness hackers, people that are interested in this stuff. Very, very, the one question is, can you, can you achieve a lifetime of meditation in a couple of years worth of practice in terms of brain change, in terms of um, these deeper, uh, you know, Richie Davidson and others have shown that lifetime meditators have very, very different brains than the rest of us. And, um, and, and, and what would it be like to, to in, in some ways, they live in altered states of consciousness. That's what it would feel like to us, like an altered state of consciousness, um, states of joy and, and, and compassion and other things. Um, if you could achieve that, you know, I've been meditating for pretty, pretty seriously for over three years now. Um, but, but not, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm no, no monk. I'm doing it, just doing it daily. And what I mean by seriously is I do it every day. Right. So, so I'm, so I use my headspace app and it's barely, you know, it's nothing too fancy. Um, but, but the rate of change is very slow. Uh, although I'll credit it to creating in me a very different brain now than I had three years ago. And a lot of it's about what you're saying. It's about cognitive control. So, so one question, of course, and I know that the neurotech community is always asking this, is how do you accelerate these desirable end states, uh, us as a 2.0 version of ourselves, um, without 40 years of sitting in a cave meditating? That's a, it's a pretty powerful idea. Yeah, I, I think th that would be a dream result from... A, a scientific study, um, you, know, it, you know, we're we're doing more focus study on um, testing focus and attention, you know, in in single day or um, you know short multi day studies. But it would be wonderful to see if you know if some someone in say Tibet, I'm picking on Tibet because they're they're famous for um, yeah. 
yeah. you know, being some of the world's leaders in this field, if someone could achieve in one year or one month, what someone else what would typically take five years. Hmm. Um, yeah. There's no shortage of great, <laughs> great experiments to do in this field. You know, one, one thing you bring up on attention on, on, sort of augmenting our attentional capacity. In the neuroplasticity research, it's very clear that attention is like a gateway to neuroplasticity. If you're paying attention, really close attention in whatever it is you're working on, this works again when you're encoding, you know, um, normal forms of memory, like remembering names or that sort of thing. Uh, but it's also the case when we're exercising, we're focusing on the actual exercise and we're doing or the running or um, th that, when you when you open that gate of attention, when you increase, think of it like a almost like a almost think of it like a light beam on the kind of object of attention uh, the, that you're working on. Uh, that we know our brains rewire faster when we do that. So so I'm thinking of what you're describing as you're increasing your attentional capacity. You then are able to shine a bigger spotlight, which then creates. It's almost like it's a self. It's almost like a like a self-fulfilling prophecy or, or, a, or a kind of upward spiral effect where um, you're, 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 you're creating the foundation of attentional capacity, which then increases more neuroplasticity, which then it, it, it's sort of like a, a feedback loop. Does that feel right to you? Oh, yeah. I love, I love what you just said. Um, yeah. So if, you know, the, like, so I, I, yes. So everything you said was beautiful. So if we, let's just take a step back and, and say, okay, what if we can accelerate the rate at which we learn? And it could be movement. It could be math, geography, learning Chinese, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and we put the work in. We do deliberate practice like we have done in years past, but now we're using neurostimulation. Yeah. Awesome. Now, what brings people back to do their second training session and their third training session? You need some kind of positive reinforcement. You need something to fuel motivation. If you did a great session on Duolingo trying to learn Chinese, but then a day later you forgot it all, it's not particularly motivating mm. to go back and do your second and third session. Same thing with you playing guitar. Same thing with anybody trying to learn anything. Like if they don't feel the progress, mm. if they don't get a sniff of some value and reward, yep. that's incredibly demotivating. Now, if you can, if neurostimulation can help kick you onto a different road, right? The road to this virtuous cycle of we put in the work, we feel the reward. Wow, that's awesome. And that's motivating. I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it again and again. And then, you know, this is shit. You know, remember when we were kids and how fun learning was? Yeah, it's the best. I have a six-year-old right now and she's just like an insatiable learner, right? And part of that is because she's learning fast and she feels the reward and the motivation is like, yes, dad, give me more. I want, I want to learn more. She can feel herself getting better quickly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's fun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that little drip of dopamine where yeah. learning is just like intoxicating. It's, it's wonderful that way, but I'll, 
you know, something happens. As we, as we grow older, um, our brains become less plastic and we're, we're on a different road. For most people, we're on a different road. And it's this death spiral where you put in the work, you don't feel the rewards. And so that's incredibly demotivating. And so you quit. And sometimes you quit before you even start. You think about all the life dreams that you had as a kid and you, you know you want to learn X, Y, and Z. And you know there's all kinds of excuses that we make up. You know We turn 40 and it, you, know, you just kind of give up because you don't want to put in all this work to get very little out of it even though it was your life dream to learn Italian and you don't even start because you're just afraid of the outcome. But you know, like I, I think it would be wonderful if neurostimulation can play a role in this where we kick people up onto a different path, like the path of this virtuous cycle where practice begets progress, begets value, begets motivation, begets more practice and so on and so forth. Fascinating. I'm thinking of Teresa Mabel's research. Um, she's at Harvard Business School on on progress, on visual progress. She wrote a book called The Progress Principle, uh, mm. and and it shows very clearly in her research. She's she, so she's originally was uh, one of the she's kind of the worked to as one of the world's leaders in creativity research. But a lot of what she's been studying is intrinsic motivation, and uh, you know the deep kind of from the inside out kind of motivation. And uh, one of the biggest kind of pillars of what actually creates that endless fuel is visual progress, seeing yourself actually making progress. Mm -hmm. And when, it, when there are internal skills like emotional intelligence or like empathy, increasing in empathy or increasing focus, capacity to focus, it's really, really hard to see progress. And you have to externalize that into some kind of system or visual way of depicting it so that it does exactly what you're saying, creates that feedback that then refuels your commitment to put forth the necessary effort and time and, and, and struggle or whatever it will take to keep learning. I, I've never thought, I've never thought my six-year-old loves learning because she learns so fast. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and, we, and we could essentially kind of rewind the clock on our adult brains and make them more, work more like kid brains so that we're learning as fast as they are so that we feel as excited and motivated about life as they do. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. So if, if my contribution to humanity could be a sliver of this, I would call it a win. I would be, <laughs> I would be a very, very happy entrepreneur. Well, this, you know, it's funny because there are, of course, people you'll know, you'll bump into them who are these kinds of humans who are just on fire and they're all, seem like they're always in flow. They're so positive and they're just these contagious, you know, balls of positivity. Um, and I, I can't help but think that one of the reasons they're accessing their deepest potential is because their brains are are hyperplastic. In fact, one of the most interesting, um, I think pieces of research as well. And some of this is still kind of coming, coming out. And it, it's, it's a, it's a more of a, uh, a linked association than it is kind of a clear, um, kind of settled agreed upon consensus in academia. But basically one of the theories out there is that that lack of neuroplasticity, we know the hippocampus shrinks in depression 
Um, we know, you know, dopamine levels dip pretty significantly, um, among other things. And, but, but one of the theories is like, if the brain can't kind of do what it needs to do, if it's not, if it's not able to rewire itself and grow, you know, if it's not malleable in that way, that, that it leads to these kind of atrophying states. I mean, depression in some ways is a shrinking away from life. Um, and, and so it's, it's a fascinating idea that, look, if you could kickstart neuroplasticity, not only are you accessing ability to learn faster, I think that's what people understand on the face of it, but you're actually quite literally pushing people up to a version of themselves that is this kind of, again, this sort of 2.0 upgraded, you know, it's all there, all the equipment's there, but sometimes it just needs training wheels to get there, like tech, right? Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Wow. You know, I, ha I have to ask you this before we wrap up, because I know there's, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in TCDS it, as, as a technology, as compared to say neurofeedback um, or other types of um, technologies that, are, that aren't as directly acting on the brain, but they're more of reinforcements that then help the brain learn in, in, in more ways. So there's, there's, these di there's different camps, I guess, in neurotech and brain tech. Um, and, and then there's these even more kind of directly interacting with the brain, which is sort of brain machine interface, right, BMI. Um, I know Elon Musk and their team just did their big kind of, uh, you know, how much, you know, what, the, what progress they've made at Neuralink uh, over the last few years, you know, a few weeks back, they, they did a kind of a conference, um, watched the whole thing, very fascinating what's going on there. Um, how do you see, what is your opinion about BMI and how do you see what you guys are doing, which is less invasive um, as compared to something like um, what Neuralink is doing. Yeah, so I, my, my last company was a, a, it was a medical implant. So it was yeah, yeah. more like what Elon's doing at Neuralink. Uh, that was a really very, that was a very long, difficult project. You know, that was, we raised $250 million. Um, it took us over 10 years, but, you know, we took a concept and uh, did a bunch of engineering and testing both in animals and in humans and ultimately got in front of the FDA and um, got it approved and it's out there. Uh, helping lots of people with epilepsy, mm. you know, a way that was basically previously inconceivable um, with just pharmaceutical products. So that, that, was, that was wonderful. Um, what was disappointing was the, um, the level of adoption. So um, th these are very expensive devices and so you don't need that many people to use it to build a decent sized business around. Mm. But that was never, I guess, uh, that was never my goal um, in life is to sell really expensive stuff to just a few people. I mm. uh, wanted to see neurostimulation go far broader. And I don't know if 
if or when or like if it'll ever happen where we as a society as humanity will be okay with implementing our brain this way so for example we implement our heart all the time we throw stents in it to open it up the arteries we put uh, defibrillators and pacemakers um, like you know these wires into the heart to help pace it and to kind of shock it back into rhythm if it's if it's misbehaving that's no problem at all people don't even blink an eye then they, they do it and it's it's fine and sometimes you even get your entire heart replaced right. uh, with somebody else's heart mm-hmm. and it's all okay but with the brain maybe it's just too much of who we are that we are like we 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 don't want things in it like we are very um, like maybe that is like um, that is something we need to get around and you know, as human beings, like, are we ready to have things implanted in our brain? Mm. I, I do not think so. I do not. I think this is going to take a generational thing. Um, you know, this is not even decades. This is, this is multi decades of, of, um, of societal change that is required before we can have things implanted in our brain, you know, so going back to my last company, the neuro the company's called Neuropace. You know, these are, so people with epilepsy can benefit from this technology and they're desperate people. Um, they have very, very, very severe epilepsy. And right. even them, even these people are thinking about the pluses and minuses of having this thing installed in their brain. Hmm. Now, it's a completely another, you know, it's like exponentially different for someone healthy to have someone like be okay with something implanted in their brain, right? So first we need to make it okay for people who are very medically desperate to be okay with neurostimulation. And then maybe at some point it trickles down and healthy people will be interested in, in implanted neurostimulators. So, you know, I, I, I applaud Neuralink and their ambition. Um, and I was actually at that, um, their big launch party. It was in San Francisco, which is um, um, convenient for me to get over and and saw the whole presentation. I was blown away. Uh, you know, I it takes someone with Elon's vision and pocketbooks to to pull off a project like this. Uh, but it, you know, for someone for a project like a moonshot project like this, you just you, like you cannot be impatient. You, you need to have like a decades long level of, of patience and perseverance to build a technology like this and to get it across the FDA and, and then into, into society where they, they, they really hunger for the technology. Uh, you know, which is why, um, you know, from, from, Neuropace, I wanted to build a so-called non-invasive neurostimulation company. Mm. Mm. So one specifically that doesn't require the surgery. Uh, There's pluses and minuses on both sides. Like, you know, the non-invasive side just makes it, um, you know, the, the, like the, um, the effect that the neuron feels will always be less than an implanted system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those are for obvious reasons, like, you know, with an implanted electrode, you're literally just dictating to the neurons what you want it to do. Right. And if you want to listen to neurons, I mean, there's nothing better than having an electrode dunked straight into the brain. Yep. Um, you know, with biofeedback, it's never, 
it's never that clean. Like, you know, so biofeedback is not what Halo does. It's what other people do. But, you know, biofeedback is about listening to the brain's electrical activity and then having it, um, you know, you play it back to the subject and you have them change something. Think about something, be more focused, be more calm, whatever it is. And it's this, uh, you know, this, this feedback mechanism that trains people to become more focused or more calm or whatever. Um, now, what biofeedback folks are measuring is stuff from the scalp. And, you know, there's this giant thing called the skull that's in the way that's shielding electrically what's happening on the inside. Now, you know, that's good because it's just a scalp electrode and it's no big deal. And when you don't want it, you just take it off. But, you know, what really stinks about that is the, like the level of detail that you can yeah. listen. Right. Now with Neuralink, they have the benefit and also NeuroPace. So my last company and Elon's current company, um, though these companies, their technologies have the benefit of an implanted electrode where you can very exquisitely listen to neurons and um, do things like, you know, in the case of Neuropace, like you can, you know, the, the little onboard computer can stimulate the brain when it's about to have a seizure. Um, you know, in Neuralink's case, uh, you could use this exquisite data to, um, you know, to control a computer, to type, to do all kinds of wonderful things, maybe control a robotic arm if you're, if they're paralyzed, um, all kinds of wonderful things. So, uh, yeah, it just, you know, I think it remains to be seen. My, I, I guess I sound, I like you, you could probably hear. You came, you came out of that space to, to build Halo because of what yeah, you Yeah, yeah. So I'm pretty bearish yeah. just based on yeah, my own personal that. experience that like humanity's not ready for it. And yeah. uh, time will tell who's right. Tell, tell me this, what, what do you, where do you think uh, the brain tech or neurotech space, what's needed in the space and what's next? Like what's coming? You know, I think, um, you know, what, what we need, I th and this is not just for enhancement, but this is, this is also for, um, for treating disease, disease is we need, we need a better measuring stick. Um, so you know, let, let's, let's go back to the heart. The heart has these amazing measuring sticks like cholesterol and LDL and things like that, where mm. one can predict if someone's going to have a heart attack in 20 years, like nothing like that exists for the brain or, uh, you know, the heart also has blood pressure. Um, it's not invasive. It's super cheap to measure, um, pulse rate, these types of things like amazing. The brain, uh, like part of the reason that we are not further along in the way that we develop things for the brain is that it's just very difficult to measure, right? Like at measuring attention and focus is very hard. There's mm -hmm. a lot of confounding variables. Um, you know, what if we had a cholesterol equivalent for measuring attention and focus mm -hmm. or even memory? Um, you know, like it's, it's really difficult to diagnose someone with dementia, um, you know, like what if there was a blood test for diagnosing Alzheimer's or being able to predict that one would have Alzheimer's in five or 10 years? Uh, you know, so much of this is just a lack of diagnostic precision that is slowing down the field. Like if we had, if, if we had better, better biomarkers, a better measuring stick, uh, the therapeutics will follow. Mm. Do you think AI, AI will play a part in this? 
that artificial intelligence will be able to spot wow. these complex patterns for us more so, clearly with Alzheimer's and other things. Yeah, with AI, AI requires data. You need to feed the machine something and it's data. Yeah. And the best data comes from our phone. And so I guess that's a question to you and your reader, your listeners. Um, are you ready to have something kind of sniffing at your brain embedded in your phone? Mm. Knowing all the other things that your phone is doing. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's a data privacy thing. It's, it's like a trust. Like, do we trust our phone? I don't know. I think people have this weird relationship with their phone mm. these days. Yeah. Because you can't get, you can't get on without it, but you're, you're afraid of what it knows about you. And, you know, if it knows that you might be declining cognitively, I, it's in there. I, I'm pretty sure it's in there. And there's companies that are great companies that are working on this. Um, like, would you feel comfortable installing that app? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question. You, you've all know, know Harari's frames it sort of as this kind of competition between privacy and access to personalized health. Mm -hmm. um, that that's the tension, right? Is, is, is it worth giving up that privacy in a sense, right? Um, to have access to early detection of cancer or early detection of Alzheimer's. Um, he comes down on the side of it probably will be over time, it might take time to get there, uh, but it's a very debatable question, uh, and it's a fascinating one. Yeah, yeah. It, like you know, maybe the blockchain really helps with this privacy issue, and it could really like your data can really be your data and not shared. So let's, uh, yeah, let's. I, I, I mean, I hope so, because yeah. the answer is in there. Yeah, the question came up of Neuralink. Do you remember that? And the, the CEO of Neuralink, uh, he, he said, we're, we don't know yet what those limitations will be, but, but maybe one of them will be no advertising uh, is, is allowed because, of course, we, as, as a revenue model, do you remember this in the presentation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because if you, if you add things like that, this incentives go in a certain way where, where access to people's data becomes, so the business model can't rely on advertising, otherwise it kind of makes these messes in terms of being too invasive in terms of privacy and other things. Fascinating. Well, Daniel, this has been so interesting and so just inspiring to kind of hear what's inside your mind, hear what you're thinking about the future and what you're trying to build with Halo. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, I just want to make sure having me. I just want to make sure people can find you, find Halo. Um, what's where? Where do they go to find Halo first? What's the website? Yeah, it's haloneuro.com. So it's haloneuro.com. H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. Um, and where can they find you? Uh, Twitter's probably the easiest. It's just Daniel Chow. Daniel Chow, C H A O. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, well, thank you again. This has been such, such a fun conversation and uh, look forward to, uh, to future conversations. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, thanks, thanks for the opportunity, James. This has been great.